And today we have Ajahn Brahmali joining us um, to talk about Buddhism and uh, identity politics. So that's such an interesting topic. It's not something we always talk about in our Dharma talks, but it is very relevant for this day and age. We hear about it a lot, not just in our everyday life, in our politics, with people that we know, with the people that I interact with. So um, how do these two things actually relate? or um, with each other. Very, very interesting. So a bit before we get into it, a bit about Ajahn Brahmali. He uh, talked, uh, he's a friend of Meta Center. He has um, given talks at um, physically in, in Sydney before, um, but um, so I'm sure we all uh, know Ajahn. Um, but yeah, just a bit of a bio. Ajahn Brahmali was born in Norway in 1964. His interest in Buddhism and meditation started after a visit to Japan, after listening to the teachings of Ajahn Brahm, he decided to travel to Bodhiyana Monastery located near Perth and has been there since 1994. He later received high ordination under Ajahn Brahm. Ajahn Brahmali's knowledge of the Pali language and the suttas is excellent. He completed the only full English translation of the Vinaya Pitaka monastic law. It is available on Sutta Central website and will be published as a book in the next few years as well. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who translated most of the Pali canon into English, called Ajahn Brahmali one of his major helpers for the recent translation of the numerical discourses of the Buddha. Ajahn Brahmali has also published a number of essays, including the book The Authenticity of the Early Buddhist Texts in collaboration with Bhante Sujato. Most of his publications are available online at bswa.org. Um, so this, as always, will be an interactive session. Ajahn will start with a meditation and introduction to the topic, and then I will jump in to help facilitate a conversation. So if you have if you have any questions, please feel free to pop them in the chat anytime, um, or unmute yourself. Um, but if you don't feel comfortable to share with everyone, you could also send the questions anonymously to me. And this session will be recorded and uploaded to YouTube. Without further ado, over to you, Ajahn. Okay, thank you, Sophia. So let's uh, get into some meditation. It's always nice to start with just uh, chilling out a bit. So just uh, a short meditation, make yourself nice and comfortable. Uh, and uh, it's always nice to start with the body. Uh, the, uh, the deep connection with the body and mind is such that if the body is at ease, uh, then the mind also tends to be at ease. Uh, so just feel the body uh, and just relax and take plenty of time just to relax and just enjoy the present, just enjoy sitting there without having anything to do in the whole world. Uh. The beginning of meditation is always about just allowing the world to fade away gradually, uh, 
And this can take a bit of time, depending on how uh, much contact you've had with the world recently. Yeah. But take the time just to allow things to fade away gradually. Yeah. And as you close your eyes and as you go inwards, uh, you find the world becomes less interesting yeah, and it fades away yeah, and you gradually move on to your inner world instead. Yeah. The most important part of meditation is not the meditation object, it is to learn just to relax and to enjoy what you're doing. If you can relax by just being without doing, you can enjoy the peace and enjoy the solitude of going within, then the rest of the meditation takes care of itself. So just learn the basic things of enjoying and relaxing, and that's when the meditation starts to work.
Okay. <laughs> All right, good. I have no idea. This is kind of weird. I've never seen this happen before, actually. Strange. Very strange happened here. But uh, never mind. This is sangsara. This is impermanence. Sure. This is kind of how the Buddhism turns out to be right every single time, right? Things go wrong. Things go upside down. There's climate change, and then there's the Zoom not working. It's kind of two sides of the same thing, really. So, <laughs> anyway. Okay, so let's, let's kind of get back to where we were. So we're talking about the idea of uh, identity, how it is uh, really problematic uh, and how it causes so many problems in the world. And I was talking about the idea of uh, not just kind of in, within social groups or in that sort of way, but uh, also in the sense of how we discover our teachers and how teachers very often there's a very strong sense of identity and a problem uh, with teachers and how we kind of follow individuals rather than follow the Buddha. And it causes problems in the world because there are so many, such a great variety of different teachings in the world. Uh, there's such a massive discrepancy between how different teachers teach. And if we want to find a common ground and we want to avoid too much argument within Buddhism, sometimes we actually have to go back to the thing that everyone has in common. Uh, that, of course, is the teachings of the Buddha. Uh, and it's kind of weird because the Buddha, he really um, warned us against this uh, very soon before he passed away. When he was traveling to Kushinara, he was on his, uh, towards his, uh, he was, knew that he was dying. He was coming to the very end of his life. Uh, and uh, because he knew that, uh, he laid down all the things that were relevant for the Sangha to survive after his demise. Uh, and of course, one of those things that he laid down, he said, there's nobody is going to take over the Sangha after I die. After I die, what is going to be your teaching is the suttas and the vinaya, the suttas and the vinaya that I have laid down. This is going to be your teaching. And of course, the first thing that, that people do is they throw that out and they take teachers as their teaching, teachers, and they follow individuals, and nobody reads the suttas, nobody reads the vinaya, no one has a clue what's going on there. That's the first thing everyone does, because I think, we, I think we have a tendency as human beings. We want something tangible. We want to have a teacher in front of us. We want to have a teacher that we can kind of, you know, who is there for us or whatever. And having some kind of amorphous Buddha, some sort of teaching that existed 2,500 years ago, it is often actually very difficult for us to actually deal with that. But that is what we should be doing here. And I think that we probably would have a far more harmonious world, a far better world, a far better Buddhist world, if we were able to follow this particular advice from the Buddha, going back to those early teachings. And again, because identity, individuality, will always cause conflicts, whereas the broader understanding of things will very often avoid the conflict and the disharmony in the world. And this is part of that, really. So um, uh, we lost a little bit of time there, so I'm going to go straight to some of the uh, solutions, some of the ways of thinking about the world that kind of uh, can overcome the problem of identity and the problems that, that this uh, brings out in terms of conflict and othering and all of these kind of things. And one of the, to me, one of the kind of most interesting things about uh, uh, life, especially from a Buddhist point of view, is how changeable it is, uh, how much each one of us changes over a lifetime, uh, 
how we go from having one identity to another one, how, how we're always moving from one set of circumstances to another set of circumstances. And this is a very important part of the Buddhist outlook. It matters enormously that we actually think about the world in these terms. And when that does, when we look at the changeability of our own psycho- psychology, of our identity, indeed, as we kind of move, we change our identity because our external circumstances change, our inner circumstances change. And the more we understand of that change in identity, the less we actually believe in identity itself. We see we're always moving around, moving from one set of circumstances to another one. Sometimes we change gender even in the modern world. Sometimes we go from rich and poor. Sometimes we go from intelligent to stupid. Sometimes we go the other way around. It's just also uncertain. We go from changing social positions, changing religions, changing almost anything in life. And once you start to realize the changeability within yourself and also outside, it starts to undermine this idea of identity. In fact, it does much more than that. It starts to enable you to connect with other people because you start to see how you are always morphing into something else. It means you have more in common with people around you than very often you actually think. Yeah, you're changing from one person to another one. You have something in common with all of these kind of people. And this is very, very useful for our understanding of others, uh, for our ability to have compassion in the world, to have sympathy for others, uh, understanding their situations. Uh, You start to make contact with other people in a deep way. Uh, You start to take their place in a sense, uh, and you make a human connection uh, with people who may may be very different from you. Uh, But of course, this idea of um, changeability, if we take into account another very important Buddhist teaching that becomes even more powerful, even more important. Uh, and this, of course, is the idea of rebirth. Uh, yeah? So if we take rebirth into account, the idea of changeability takes on an entirely new dimension. Uh, it becomes far more pronounced. Uh, and suddenly, changeability becomes almost, there's almost no limits anymore to how much we can change. Uh, changing gender from one life to another one is quite common. Uh, changing nationality, changing socioeconomic status, changing race, changing almost everything will change or can change from one life to the next one. And I, from a, from a very personal point of view, and I like, this is something I usually like to talk about because I often wonder, what was I in a past life? Why is it that I'm a Buddhist monk in this particular life? And if you look at my story, if you look at my early life, where I was born, the family I had, the friends I had, the society I grew up in, uh, there's nothing in my kind of personal history that should uh, suggest I should become a Buddhist monk. Yeah? yeah, there's nothing there at all. I grew up in a cold place. There were no Buddhists around. I had no Buddhists in my family. There's absolutely no reason for me to become a Buddhist monk. Yeah? And the more I have reflected on this and the more I have... Uh, uh, kind of looked at some experiences that I've had in my life, uh, the more convinced I am that I was very likely a Buddhist monastic also in a past life, probably a fairly recent past life. Uh, and if I was a Buddhist monastic in the past life, uh, where would that have been? Well, most likely it would have to have been in Asia somewhere, uh, right? So I straight away, if that is the case, then I would have been an Asian monastic in a very recent life. Uh, not only was I... 
quite likely an Asian monastic in a very recent life. I could very well also have been of a different gender. I could have been a nun maybe, which is quite likely because in some Buddhist Asian countries there's a large uh, pr uh, prominence of nuns. And so once I see myself in that way, and once I see that alternative person in myself, uh, it makes me look at people who may seem different superficially to me in a completely different way. I start to see myself in that person. I start to make a personal connection with people who actually are very different because I can feel, if I look deep inside of myself, I can feel that person actually being there within. And this is very powerful for reducing the idea of othering. And if you keep bring this idea even further, if you take it even further, the idea is that actually all the separation that we have in the world, the separation from anyone we ever meet, is always very artificial. We need to remember we have been that kind of person in the past, whether it's someone who is psychologically ill, whether it's someone from any country, any place, any culture in this world, any kind of gender, whether you are gay or straight, you are a trans person, whatever it might be, all of those people are inside of us. We have been those people before. And what that means is that when you start to move about in the world, when you start to see people who may look very, very different from you. I was recently in the United States and I saw a large number of people living on the street. When you see that person living on the street, maybe mentally ill, do you feel a sense of separation? Or do you feel that this person could be you? And the moment you know that this person is you, the moment you know that you have been there in the past, and unless you make a change to your life now and come out of this problem of existence, you will also be there in the future. The moment you see yourself in that person, you create a very powerful human connection. And it's impossible almost not to have sympathy, not to have compassion at that particular point. And this shows you that by reducing the idea of identity, by understanding that we are all fluid, always moving from one situation to another one, we don't have an identity. We are not a particular person, or rather we are everyone and no one at the same time, because we have been in all those situations before. Then we can create real human connections, real human understanding in this world, with sympathy, with compassion for all people around us. And then we can allow that sympathy and compassion to feed into our politics, into the voice referendum that we're having now for the Aboriginal people, or the indigenous people, into any kind of other uh, identity politics or social uh, activism that we may get into. That idea of compassion and sympathy, we can allow it to feed into that understanding that these people are not actually different from us at all. They are all part of us. They are part, I am part of them, they are part of us. And once you see that, we, it opens up a new avenue for understanding the world, which can become very, very powerful. And so the point here is really that we should be careful when we use things like identity politics. We should use it in the right way. We should use it in a way whereby we create unity, we create understanding, and we don't create othering. If we create too much othering, if that is the outcome, and I don't know if it is, this is not meant as a critique, it is just a critique of the word identity, really. 
but it's just the kind of uh, seeing the danger in some of these concepts uh, if they're used in a bad way. Huh? This is one of the ways that uh, we can create more brotherhood and more sisterhood in the world by seeing uh, the kind of how we're always in flux, always changing, uh, and that the distinction between us is far, far less than we believe. Uh, and very often those imprints uh, will be there still within us. Uh, if you have been a certain person in the past life, uh, the feeling of that person will be deep inside you somewhere. It's part of your psyche. Uh, it's not something that you can erase completely. Uh, and so it is possible to have compassion and sympathy for people who are even very, very different from us. So, so this is uh, one powerful way. Another powerful way that the idea of identity can be used as a matter of practical practice, how to kind of use it in our ordinary life, uh, is in the idea more broadly of compassion. I've always already said how the idea of brotherhood and reducing the distance between an, uh, us and others leads naturally to compassion. But the whole idea of compassion in Buddhism is to a very large extent based on the idea of non-self. If you understand non-self, which is the opposite of identity, then compassion is actually a natural outcome of the idea of non-self. And there is a beautiful simile in the Sutta that I often talk about because it is so powerful in giving rise to compassion and sympathy in the world. And that is the simile of the sick person. And the Buddha says that when, you, when someone is bad in the world, when someone does bad things, bad actions by body, bad actions by speech, bad actions by mind even, yeah? We can extend this also to be any kind of human being or whatever kind there is in the world, someone we don't like for whatever reason. Uh, whatever the reason is, when we see someone who is difficult to like or difficult to accept for their conduct or whatever it might be, uh, then we should regard that person as a sick person. Uh, it's such a beautiful idea because the moment our natural reaction to people in the world who are difficult, who annoy us, who have bad qualities, is to have a sense of irritation and anger with that person, is to push them away because we find them problematic or whatever. But actually, no, that is the wrong way of thinking about them. Because you, the kind of slight, tiny little bit of discomfort that you may have to live with because of another difficult person, that is really nothing. The real problem, actually they are the one who have the real problem. They are the one who are acting in a way that is really problematic. They are creating really bad karma. They are destroying their own inner sense of happiness, their own inner sense of meaning, and making life miserable for themselves. And when you know that someone is acting in a way that is leading to their own misery, destroying their own future, thinking at the same time that they're doing something that actually leads to something positive, then the only natural response to that kind of person is to have compassion for them. They don't know what they're doing. They are blind. They're walking in darkness. They're hitting the head all the time without understanding why they're doing that. They think they're living in a way that leads to their own happiness and meaning and a benefit when actually they're doing the exact opposite and dragging themselves down, destroying their own future, also destroying their own present right here and now. And so you understand, they are a sick person. Everyone in the world wants to be happy. And if anyone is living in a way that leads to their own unhappiness, it is only because they are severely deluded, severely, if you like, 
mentally ill in a certain way, uh, and they have a real, real problem. Uh. And there's a very beautiful way of thinking about the world. It comes from the idea of non-identity. This person does not have an evil identity or a bad identity. They are just changing. They have been conditioned to be who they are. It has nothing to do with identity. The moment you think in terms of identity, compassion becomes very difficult because then there is a sense that this person is responsible for this, that it is their identity. They have taken this on board because they think this is what they should do. I'm going to be evil towards others or whatever it is. I don't know how anyone could ever think, think like that, but that's kind of the, almost like the ideas behind it. But of course, that's not what's going on at all. What is going on is that this person has been conditioned in a certain way, has been under the influence of certain people, certain groups, whatever it might be. And because of that conditioning, they are trapped they are trapped in a personality that's been conditioned in a way whereby they cannot almost not avoid doing stupid things, doing bad things, doing things that actually hurt themselves more than anyone else. That is really what is at stake. And so what this does, it opens up the door to compassion. Non-identity opens up the door to seeing people in a completely new way. And instead of feeling sorry for ourselves, Instead of feeling my little world is being compromised by other people, uh, we turn the table uh, and we open the door of our heart uh, and we allow uh, the possibility that actually this person is the one who has a real problem. For us, we can deal with it. Yeah? And moving from the idea of the selfish little me or self-centered little, little me who is being hurt uh, and changing from that, which is a small, tiny world, a world that is very, you feel trapped, you feel confined uh, it doesn't really uh, have that largeness of mind that we want to cultivate on the path. Uh, and then you move to compassion. That is where you create that largeness of the mind. Uh, the mind which takes in the people around us uh, enables us to have that sympathy and understanding for the world around us. Uh, it's a beautiful change that happens in the mind. Uh, and all we have to do is to shift our perception of people from identity to conditioned beings. Uh, the moment you understand that other people are conditioned beings, at that moment, uh, you also your entire understanding of the world changes enormously. Yeah. And I think this is a very, very big problem in our contemporary world. It has always been a big problem. It is a problem because deep down it feels like our identity is so solid and so strong. Yeah. And because our identity is so solid and strong, it is hard to understand this idea of being conditioned. Yeah. And this is why we need to reflect on these Buddhist teachings again and again and again to gradually see the world in a new way, understand how conditioned we all are, and then allowing forgiveness, compassion, and sympathy to come out instead. So these are two ways of uh, uh, gradually, in a sense, uh, working with the idea of non-identity, trying to move away from identity. Uh, but really, at the end of the day, it comes down to changing what we identify with. One of the problems that we are dealing with when we're dealing with the idea of identity is that identity is almost like a given in our lives. We cannot say, I will have no identity. That's impossible because it comes as part and parcel of who we are as human beings. We're born into this world and we're born with certain defilements, certain delusions. 
And in Buddhism, one of those delusions is precisely the idea of identity. We have other problems like craving, we have attachments, we have all of these kind of things. And all of these things are given when we come into this world. And because they are given, we can't just give them up just like that. We have to somehow work with them. And so what we do then, the right approach to all of this, is really to um, use our cravings, use our attachments, use our identity in such a way that it makes the path work. Yeah, we use these things in the kind of in the uh, in the pursuit of the Buddhist practice. Then we are using them in the right way. And the suttas do actually talk about this. Yeah, they talk about craving or desiring in such a way that it progresses the path. And also the same thing with the conceit or the identity. We use our sense of identity in such a way that it actually works. And now I'm coming back to where I started out this talk. I started out talking about Myanmar and how to solve the problem in Myanmar. And you will have noticed that I, what I did, I shifted the idea of identity from instead of identifying as a group of people or as a particular individual, you identify instead with what kind of person you are, with your practice. You identify with being kind, with being caring, with being understanding, with being compassionate, with having metta, all of these kind of things. And once you identify with the qualities of the Dhamma itself, then you are allowing, using the sense of identity, using that to help you progress on the Buddhist path. Yeah, you hold on to that, those ideas in a certain way. You hold on to the ideas of kindness in a certain way. You don't give up on these things. In fact, you start with identifying with these things. It is important to understand that the only way you're going to be able to practice this path properly is to actually hold on to these ideas to some extent. We have to hold on to certain things. So we have to choose things that are useful for the path. And these are things like ethics, morality, etc., etc. And then, as the path progresses, as you're having success with your, uh, how you're dealing with people in the world, with your compassion and kindness and all of these kind of things, you take another step. Yeah, and the next step, of course, is your meditation practice. And as your meditation is successful, as you're having a little bit of peace in your meditation, you're finding some joy in your meditation, you're finding that this path really is coming together, then, of course, your identity starts to go into those states of meditation that you have. Maybe you're feeling a sense of love of metta in your meditation. Maybe you're able to develop some karuna, some of the um, compassion we're talking about, And as these feelings are building up, and as these intentions are building up in your life, as you get building up a mind that is more pure, that is more um, happy and more joyful, has less defilements defilements in it, uh, gradually you start to identify with that. You cannot... Uh, it's impossible not to identify with these things, right? Actually, this is just in par for the course. It is going to happen whether you want to or not, because these are delightful things. And we all want to identify with delightful things. We all want to see ourselves as good human beings. We want to see the best aspect of ourselves. And deep meditation allows you access to the deeper aspects of yourself so that you can start to identify with this. So what this means, the kind of point I'm trying to make here, 
is that it is almost like a ladder of identity. Yeah. yeah, we start up by giving up the lower kind of identity. I identify with my country, I identify with my gender, I identify with my education, I identify with all of these superficial kind of things. And you take one step up the ladder, identify at least with being kind, with being caring, with being virtuous, and these kind of things. And then, as you keep on practicing that virtue, you take one other step up the ladder. You start to identify with your meditation practice, with the beautiful states of mind that are attainable through that meditation practice. And then, you want to take another step up the ladder. Now, one of the interesting thing that is happening as you move up the ladder is that your identity is also loosening at the same time. When you have an ordinary identity in the world, it is often very coarse, it is very hard, it is a very strong kind of identity. But as you move up the ladder, it's as if the identity fades a little bit. It becomes a more soft, a more gentle kind of identity. It is grand, gradually you can see that you're actually overcoming this idea of identity altogether. But then comes the last step on this path. And the last step of that path is then, of course, the insight that arises based on uh, that deep meditation that you're having. And that is where finally you overcome identity once and for all. And you realize the whole idea of identity was a mistake in the first place. And that, of course, is the most beautiful experience that you can have as a human being, giving up your sense of identity once and for all. And once you have that, uh, yeah, then, of course, never again will you identify as any particular being. Uh, one of the most wonderful things in the world that you will find uh, is that if you find someone, if you find a teacher who is really spiritually attained, uh, who has deep meditation, has deep insight, uh, you will find that this person will treat you the same pretty much regardless of who you are. Uh, yeah, It's a beautiful thing to see here. Uh, the person who has gone a long way on the path will treat you the same, whether you are male or female, whether you come from this country or that country, that society or this society, whether you're handicapped or not. Even if you're mentally handicapped, yeah, they will treat you in the same way, with kindness and care, and do the right thing. And this is one of the hallmarks of someone who is really attained on the path, this idea of non-discrimination, non-identity. And this is what we're seeing towards the very end of the path. And so, just coming back to where I started out, I'm going to stop in a, in a second now, but just coming back to where I started out, talking about uh, the idea of identity politics. Uh, I think, generally speaking, identity politics is a wonderful thing, as long as we use it for social progress, for social inclusivity, uh, and we want to bring everyone on board, give everyone a fair chance, overcome the discriminations in our society. I think that is incredibly important. And I think all of that is very much aligned with the Buddhist ideas of morality and ethics. We should have that kind of social inclusivity. It actually matters enormously. But we should also be careful not to get into too much identity. If we silo people off into one silo and have other people into another silo, and we kind of get into the idea of othering, it's me against them. At that moment, we risk losing the perception of compassion and understanding for each other. And down the track, according to people who understand the idea of conflict and violence in the world, the last thing we want to do is to have a sense of othering in the world. That sense of othering will lead to conflict and problems down the track. 
And that is precisely, I think, one of the very important things uh, that we're trying to overcome in Buddhism. So, uh, there you are. That is my uh, little talk on, uh, uh, what is it, identity, politics, and Buddhism. Are you still there, Tina? Yes, I am still here. Is anyone there? Yes, we are. Yeah. And thank you so much. That was an excellent, excellent talk. I, very, very wise in terms of what you said. And particularly when you said that um, when we are able to see that we are everyone and no one at the same time, we can be more compassionate and have more sympathy. I love that. I really, really do. So beautiful. Um, Ajahn, we're now yeah. I'm going to pass over to Sophia, who's going to facilitate the question and answer session. Okay, good. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Ajahn, and thank you, Tina. Um, yeah, I agree. That was a very wise talk. Um, never expected gender identity politics to turn into a talk about, you know, like um, how we start with uh, like a clinging onto certain identities defined by society or um, the tangible cause things. And then moving on to um, identifying with the wholesome objects and then moving eventually to be having no identity. Um, very interesting talk. So um, now I invite everyone in this session, if you have any questions, if you have any comments, if you have any thoughts you'd like to share, um, please feel free to pop them in the chat uh, if you're online or unmute yourself as well. And if you're in person, as you know, you could talk to Tina or um, and send your message that way. If you don't have any questions um, in particular, um, I invite you to, to reflect on this question, which is, um, in your everyday life, what are some of the uh, times you encounter challenges with clinging onto certain identities? What are some of the challenges you may face with with the with clinging on to certain identities as Arjun has talked about. Um, so yeah. Arjun, like well, like we don't have any questions at the moment, but I'm curious to know. Oh. Um so with our I, I find it really interesting that um, you're connecting compassion um, with with identity. So, um, but then as I'm reflecting on my own identity, I'm thinking that there are certain views I'd like to hold on to about who I am, but sometimes that becomes a hindrance in me being, being able to be present with the other types of thoughts things going on in my mind that could be more negative and that could lead to rejection or aversion arising. So are you able to please talk a bit about um, what if there are, you, you're clinging, you're identifying with the wholesome objects, but how do you also be aware or be with, be able to be with the less wholesome objects as they arise? Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, it's important not to put the bar uh, too high with this kind of thing. Sometimes we kind of become too idealistic and we're asking for the impossible. So uh, uh, one of the things we should do as well, we should also realize and have compassion for ourselves. Self-compassion is a very important thing. 
and to understand that sometimes we're not going to be perfect. Sometimes we are going to, because we're also conditioned. We're also conditioned with our background. Sometimes we're going to get angry. Sometimes we're going to have negative things happening. And that's okay. Yeah, it's okay to have that. The Buddhist path is often a, uh, a long-term project in overcoming our habits because our habits are so deeply ingrained. Overcoming those habits take a long time. So you have an idea of where you want to go. You have a kind of roadmap which the Buddha gives you. And then you apply that roadmap as much as you can while having compassion when you fail. And you will fail a lot. Yeah, you will fail all the time. Every day you're going to fail a little bit. And that's okay. Then you have compassion for yourself. You understand your own limitations. You understand there's only so much you can do in the world. And when you combine that sense of self-acceptance and self-compassion with the ideal of moving forward or going somewhere, that is kind of the best way of moving forward. Uh, otherwise, you're going to get angry with yourself. Otherwise, you're going to get kind of depressed because you can't do it or whatever. Uh, but no, every time you fail, just say, okay, I, I expected this. Uh, this is part for the course. Uh, and then gradually, gradually, you're moving forward. Uh. Mm, yeah, thank you. Self-compassion as part of a very important part of this journey too, which mm. is something a lot of us probably struggle with. <laughs> Thank you, Ajahn. Um, we have a comment from Sensing. This is such a wonderful talk, Ajahn. Thank you so much. Such wise advice. And we also have a question. So um, Letitia said, wow, thank you so much, Ajahn Brahmali. Is the perception that we are everything and no self, is that main insight of enlightenment? Much better and gratitude. <laughs> Um, I, I think the, uh, the, the main insight of enlightenment is that um, uh, it, it, it is that we are nobody. That's kind of the main insight. The main insight is just that we are these five khandhas. We are this kind of uh, process moving on in the world and that we are nobody. Uh, when I say that we are everyone, we are everyone in the sense that we have been everywhere before and we have all of these things kind of deep inside of us. But we aren't really those things, it's just that we have those experiences where we can understand other people as well in the world. That's kind of the idea there. But the main insight of enlightenment is that there is uh, uh, nothing really, uh, we aren't anyone. And then you can see the five khandhas, you can see your person for what it actually is. And what you see is you basically you see suffering, you see a problem, and you, so you understand how to overcome that problem is to kind of to uh, end uh, rebirth, because that's when you are ending this kind of cycle of just moving on forever and ever. So uh, it, that, that, uh, I'm not sure how clear that was, but... Uh, Something to that effect is what, what you actually see here. Mm, that's a very interesting point. We've also got um, someone asking a question of, I have, heard, I have heard one certain controversial commentator mention that pride is dangerous as a psychological concept in identity politics. What do you think about this? By the way, thank you for giving this talk during Vasa. That's from Mayan. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, pride is another thing. Pride is very closely related to the idea of identity. Yeah? Identity means that you take pride in who you are and the kind of personality you have and all of the various uh, uh, aspects of that personality. Yeah? So pride is very, very closely related to this. And uh, 
if we take, you know, we should have a sense of wholesome pride about who we are, but we shouldn't kind of think that that makes us better than others. If the pride makes you better than others, then it is problematic. But if the pride is merely the fact that you feel good about yourself, that you have a sense of self-esteem, that you have a sense of self-worth, well, then, of course, it is very positive. That kind of pride we should have. But we should not have the pride where we kind of create this othering again, where, we, where other people become less. Because at that particular point, then discrimination becomes justified. If you are better and other people are worse, then, of course, you are more important, right? And that is problematic. The moment you think you are more important, well, then you have a problem. So we should regard ourselves as like kind of more like equal. Equal is really the right, thing, the right way to think about it. One of the interesting things on the Buddhist path, you know, you have this idea of the three kinds of conceit in Buddhism, uh, inferiority conceit, superiority conceit, and equality conceit. And the idea of equality conceit is a very interesting one. It's a very Buddhist kind of idea. No one else in the whole world talks about equality conceit. It sounds really weird. It sounds like an oxymoron, the equality conceit. But the idea is that uh, you cannot... Uh, compare yourself to other people. And the reason you cannot is because we're always changing. So which person, who are you? You know, some, it's one time today you might be a bit upset about something. Another time you may have a lot of meta for the people around you. Another time you're kind of somewhere in between. And then you have another person. We're always changing all the time. So which person are you? Which part of you do you compare to the other person? And then over the years, we change, maybe someone becoming a better person, someone is becoming a worse person, perhaps, in terms of general qualities inside. There is no foundation for comparing. And because there is no foundation for comparing, it is also impossible to be proud. It's impossible to say, I am better or worse, or even equal. We are all these kind of blobs of changeable five khandas moving around in the world, interacting with each other. And to that extent that we are these changeable blobs of five khandas, to that extent we are the same. Yeah, we're kind of moving in a similar kind of direction. And once you see that kind of similarity between us, uh, then it is also possible to uh, have more sense of, uh, yeah, we are, you know, of brotherhood or sisterhood, if you like, or whatever, fellow uh, human uh, humanity between, uh, between all of us. So. Mm, that's really beautiful, um, Ajahn. Um, reflecting on that, it's kind of like it's easier to be able to, um, to be able to, to feel that or be present with this sameness when your mind is more balanced however when there's hindrances arising or when this uh then it's more likely that you see the differences and you compare rather than be able to see ourselves as the blobs of five condors um yeah is that sort of do you have any thoughts or views on that yeah, I, I always have some views. <laughs> the, uh, it's true. It is very. What you're saying is very right. Sometimes you feel your mind is in balance. Sometimes you feel that you are coming from a good place, and then it's kind of easy. Yeah, everything is easy. You are kind to everyone, no matter who they are, and there's no there's no issues. Uh, uh, but when the defilements are there, that is why you have to be very careful when there are defilements. That's why uh, you have to have mindfulness. At the very least, you have to know that now there are defilements uh, in your mind. You're upset about something or whatever. Uh, 
And so once you have that, once you have that awareness that you have a defilement, well, then you know that you're going to be biased. Uh, you know you're going to do stupid things. Uh, so either you have to overcome that defilement using some kind of skillful technique, uh, or if that is too difficult at that time, uh, then sometimes you just have to avoid doing very much. Yeah? You have to not say too much, not do very much, because you know that what's going to come out of you might not be right. Uh, if you have to act despite the defilement, you just have to have as much mindfulness as you possibly can to avoid doing the wrong thing here. Yeah? So this is really the, uh, this is kind of the ideal. Yeah? First of all, see if you can overcome the defilement, then avoid doing anything at that particular time because you know it's not a good idea to do things. And finally, have enough mindfulness. If none of the first two work, then have enough mindfulness to uh, at least not... Uh, uh, to at least minimize the problem if you have to interact with others. Yeah. Wow, that, that's very, very practical and useful advice. Thank you, Ajahn. Exactly sort of along what I was thinking, like questions in my mind, you answered it. Um, we also have another question. Um, I've heard some people use the idea that from the Dharma viewpoint, we need to eventually let go of identity to deny the problems that disadvantaged groups have i.e. blaming their identity for their problems. You touched on this issue, but perhaps you could say a little more about it. Yeah, so blaming their identity for their problems, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's so, a... yeah I, think, I think that is also very... Uh, identity and problems are not really necessarily connected with each other. Yeah, Identity is one thing, yeah. And the problems are often very, uh, very different. And uh, uh, again, the idea in Buddhism is always not to blame anyone for anything, really, because the idea is the idea of conditionality, the idea that we are who we are, not because we choose to be those people, not because we choose our identity, but because we have been conditioned to be that person. Uh, and one of the ways I like to think of this is that we are like in prison. Yeah, we are in prison. The prison is our personality, basically. Our personality is that which has been formed through our life, through our, all our experiences with our parents, with our schools, with our friends, with our inner experiences, past lives, everything forms us to be who we are now. And if someone asks you to step out of your personality and be someone else, you know it's impossible. You cannot step out of your personality. Your personality is like a trap. Your personality is a habit. The personality is something you cannot really escape from. And that personality forces you to live in a certain way. It forces you to react in a certain way because that is what personality means. It means that you have a certain way of dealing with the world, a certain way of seeing the world, a certain way of reacting to the world. And so uh, we should never blame anyone for anything. An identity, if it is a fiction, we should always understand that anyone else is trapped by their delusions in the world. Uh, and that if anything, uh, actually, the only right response to anyone in the world is always compassion, uh, is always that. Uh, the thing which stops us from having compassion for others uh, is the feeling that uh, they have an identity, that they have a personality, that they actually have a will to do things differently. Uh, that is the reason, that is the kind of the, almost like an intuitive feeling. But we cannot always trust our intuition because uh, uh, there are these profound problems, uh, these profound uh, um, reality that we don't understand properly. Uh, our intuition is very often wrong. Uh, 
So reality, from a Buddhist point of view, and this is what we have to try to approximate in our practice, uh, is to understand people as conditioned beings. Uh, and because they are conditioned beings, they're always worthy of compassion, sympathy, and understanding, uh, because that is what it means to be conditioned. You have, don't have much choice. You are trapped, you are in prison, uh, and you will act as a prisoner does. You are shackled, you are held back, you have very limited movement, yeah? And that means that you can only not really be held responsible for so many of the things that you do. That's so beautiful, Ajahn. Um, we have a little bit over time. I just have a really quick question in regards to what you said. So it's sort of like understanding um, that beings are conditioned beings does help make uh does help to for with the arising of compassion is there a balance between understanding and also protecting you yourself because you could lean too far on the compassion side and um allow conditioned beings to hurt you in different ways mm -hmm. Uh, yes, so well, I, I don't think you can have too much compassion. Compassion is always right. It is more how you express that compassion. So you can express that compassion uh, either outwardly, uh, but sometimes, as you say, if you express it outwardly all the time, people can actually hurt you because they don't really understand or whatever. Uh, but uh, if you cannot express it outwardly towards others, you can always have compassion in your heart. And that compassion in your heart is never going to be a problem because it's just really you just living with yourself, living in a good way with yourself. Uh, so, but you're right, you should protect yourself. And if you feel that someone doesn't understand and they kind of uh, misuse the compassion that you have, hold back. But never give up on the compassion within. That's the most important part. I love that. That answered another question I've had for a very long time. Thank you so much. Um, we are at 8.30, so unfortunately we're out of time. Um, thank you so much, Arjun, for a wonderful talk. And I think that's echoed by a lot of people here, lots of uh, also hands together as thank yous and thank you for a wonderful talk thank you Mr. Center for organizing this um yeah like so many great takeaways um a really fresh perspective to look at the way um we see ourselves and see others and see all beings really and um yeah really really great talk thank you so much Arjun okay thank you so much uh, from everyone and very nice to see you all and look after yourselves yeah yeah. Before we finish, though, do you have time for a quick dedication yep. of merits, Ajahn? Dedication of merits? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Dedication of merits? Yes, that is what I said. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay, so we'll we'll do a traditional, the traditional dedication of merits. And uh, this is uh, the kind of typical Sri Lankan version. So I will I will just do the chanting, and if you want to, you can do whatever you like. But uh, so, so here we go. <laughs> Edang men yatenang hotu, sukita hontu nyatayo. Edang men yatenang hotu, sukita hontu nyatayo. Edang men yatenang hotu, sukita hontu nyatayo. Sadhu, sadhu. Thank you, everyone. Ramali, you know, uh, right. it's nice to see you again here uh, or, or 
to hear from you again, rather. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I just wanted to also mention to everybody that if uh, you would like to um, listen to Ajahn Brahmali again, um, on the 25th of September, Ajahn Brahmali will be um, competing with Bantas Jato <laughs> uh, at a special event called the Buddhist Bowl Trivia. So it's not going to be just a competition between the two monks only. It's actually going to involve lots of us. So if we want to participate, we can do so as well. So we can, I'll just put the details in the chats here. Uh, so that's going to be on the 25th of uh, September, so um, the Buddhist Bowl Trivia, but also the Meta Convention, uh, which is going to happen on the uh, uh, 30th, 30th of September and the 1st of October. On the 1st of October, um, there's going to be a panel uh, with Ajahn Brahmali, Bhante Sujato, and Venerable Kama Lekshe. And the topic is very interesting. It sounds quite thought-provoking. It's called the weaponization of love, exploring the dark side of manipulative love and finding genuine loving kindness. And also, but Ajahn Brahmali would like to talk about how to love like the Buddha. So um, come and join us, maybe. <laughs> I've got all the information in the chat. So if you're interested, you can find all the details there. So looking forward to seeing you again, Ajahn Brahmali. Yeah. He says thank you. He's gone now. <laughs> but thanks, Vincent, for the promotion. In fact, the Meta Convention is the whole week. So the 25th of September until the 1st of October, and it's completely free. And you can join either online or in person. I recommend in person. Um, the vibe is going to be amazing. All the people who will be coming and joining us for that week is going to be incredible. So um, if you are interested to participate, all of these events that we're organizing are all on our website, as well as social media, Facebook, WhatsApp group. If you would like to support the work we do, then we would love to have you on board, whether you want to volunteer or offer a donation. We run 100% on donations and also on volunteers power. So it will be great to have you on board and help us out. So um, Sophia, final announcements? Yeah, there we go in the chat. So next Wednesday, we have another session called A Bright Heart in Dark Days by Venerable Aya Yeshe. So um, yeah, looking forward to seeing you again at seven o'clock sharp Sydney time. Next week is our last Wednesday night here at the Meta Centre. And then after that, we are going to scoot across to Western Sydney University. And that's part of our outreach to do more work for the student community there. So for those who are joining us in person, we would love to see you at the Western Sydney Uni. So next week, over here at Meta Centre. And then after that, we're going over to the Uni. Interesting. So I hope to see you. And for those who are joining us online, the same link, just use that and then you can connect to us that way. Great. Yeah.